Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody, it's Bob here. I've got Gene Bliss on the line. Chief Customer Officer 2.0, How to Build Your Customer-Driven Growth Engine. And uh, before we get started, I wanted to ask Gene, how the heck did you end up with Bliss as a last name? So good to be with you, Bob. (laughs) Um, I happen to be lucky enough to marry a guy named Bliss, um, which is pretty crazy, right? But when I'm on stage, I tell everybody I went all over Match.com to find a guy named Bliss to marry so I could name my company is called Customer Bliss. So somehow it was all in the stars. Uh, Just lucky, though. Lucky, crazy coincidence. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's the thing about... um living your life to the fullest it's about taking what's going on around you and saying you know what this is an opportunity it's not a negative thing it's an opportunity for me to to shine and and it's one of the things i'm always consulting with clients about saying look at it's not a crisis it's an opportunity for to make you look amazing and jump in there and do uh something for customers or for a whole section of uh, your industry and make them be aware that uh, you can do amazing stuff so get started I wanted to know a little bit more about you know what's your background and why have you evolved because you've you've written the the customer uh, you've written this book before and now you've gone to 2.0 so it's kind of like a a two-headed question let's talk a little bit about the background what what's got the first book off the ground what type of response you got from that and then we'll jump into the new one Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah, no, I am a um, dyed-in-the-wool customer zealot starting back in the dark ages, if you will. There's probably some people in your audience who weren't even born, Bob, when I started this. And um, I had the great joy and opportunity to start my customer zealotry career at Land's End in 1983, which is Land's End is a catalog company. Back in the dark ages, as I was mentioning, we were really known as the kind of premier company for customer experience, customer service, as it was most mostly called back then. And um, by the age of 26, I was reporting to the executive committee of Land's End because I had peppered them with so many questions and bugged them so much about stuff that we needed to do for the company. And so I um, led Land's End with the leadership team around customer experience through through its most formative and uh, important growth years. And then went on to report to the CEOs or senior leaders of um, Allstate, Microsoft, Coldwell Banker, and Allstate corporations. So I did that for over 25 years, pushing the customer rock up the hill, really in the first in incarnation of a chief customer officer in most of those companies. So in uh, 2005 and then published in 2006 was the first version of this book we're talking about, which is really the the roadmap, the, the, the guidebook I wish I had had on my desk when I was doing that work because I wanted to give the other brave crusaders hope and a map that they could count on from somebody who had stepped in their shoes. Um, so that's how I got, I came to write my first book. Hey, so I noticed you used uh, two interesting words, zealot and crusaders. And do you think that uh, the the customer service concept um, has been a pitch battle to get uh, C-suite to understand the importance of it? Well, it's a good question and it's changing, thankfully. And um, what we've been doing in the industry, those of us who are pioneers and have been working on this work for a long time, is that we're 
we're actively working to make it not be that. Um, when I was at Land's End, it wasn't. It was part of the core of why we grew and who we grew, who we were as a company. But in a lot of organizations, what's what, what seems unnecessary is to talk about the customer as the reason why you're in business and to be deliberate about wrapping an experience around the product or service that you deliver. Um, but it is because... Bob, as you know, most large corporations, especially, and even small ones, are built around areas of expertise or what we call silos, where people are working hard, but they're working hard separately. And it's in the working hard separately that uh, we inadvertently deliver a defaulted and a discoordinated, uncoordinated experience to customers. And um, what we've started doing is calling it customer experience um, rather than customer service because customer service is a reaction to a problem. Customer experience is deliberate architecting of an experience customers will want to have again and tell other people about. Well, you know, and, and I think a, a fine example, probably one of the best examples is when Apple decided to actually do brick and mortar stores and people say, are you nuts? Why would you do that? And then they totally revolutionized the way people actually uh, go into a store and the type of service that they get uh, blew everybody away. Well, and there was a lot of deliberateness around that. And, and that's the, the word when we work with leaders a lot is you have to do these things on purpose. Um, the, 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 the way the Apple store is organized as legendary, you probably know this. It's the, the, the beginning is like the entryway. Um, the middle is like the living room and where the genius bar is like the, the kitchen or the, where everybody bellies up and spends the majority of their time. And there was a thought process around merging you into that experience. Um, in the larger stores where that glass staircase exists, it's take, to take you up to nirvana of some sort. And so when companies think in that deliberate of a way, you know, we did that at Land's End. We thought about and the emotion and how it felt for the UPS man to hand you a box with your child's gift inside of it. We imagined pulling a turtleneck over your head for the first time. And when a company does that, it opens the doors to innovation that supersede the tactical execution of getting stuff done, which is what a lot of companies think about as the work of their business. So, you know, for me, I look at that as the brand experience. And, and is there that much of a disconnect where people say, well, it's more the branding and marketing department and not the customer experience? Or should those two departments be melded together so there's better coordination? Well, they all need to work together. And, and there's a lot of conversation now about, is it the CMO or the CCO or how do they merge? I don't really care who holds the role, but here's what it is, is articulating what your brand is without deliberately creating an operating plan to deliver that role or that experience is is a marketing or branding statement without the customer living it, right? So for example, there's a, a very large healthcare system, I won't say who, um, who had put big board, bulletin, big boards all around, you know, lots of different tri-state, lots of different areas saying that their uh, doctors were the most patient and kind and the most wonderful and the most caring. Well, they hadn't done anything differently with the doctors. They hadn't hired doctors differently, um, but they had gone out and branded themselves in this manner. Um, so the experience you deliver is 
your brand. So the the two need to be melded. There needs to be an operational, a cultural decision-making framework that is consistent with what you say you're going to be. Without it, it's two, you know, two parts of the organization not really working together to deliver something. So, so that's why social media has been interesting. Oh yeah, it's well, it's it's either being a revolutionary experience for a company or a nightmare for a company. Well, I I love the forcing function, um, Bob. That that social media has has given us because, to your point, when a company says, "Here's who we are." But they deliver something that says, no, here's who we are. The customers are the ones who get on and say, here's the experience that's being delivered. And so leaders are recognizing that they have to deliver an experience that lives up to what they promise. Because otherwise, customers are going to go out and level set everybody on what really is happening. Um, so it's it's creating a commitment from a leadership standpoint to invest in the customer experience work and embed competencies. I call them competencies rather than simply reacting to survey scores or people going out in the field and getting feedback from customers. There has to be a real deliberateness and architecting, um, starting with customers' emotions, on how you want to take them on a journey to achieve the things they want to achieve. Well, you know, it it almost seems to me, too, that it's part of the evolution of the customer uh, as as well as the customer experience. Like, think way back, way, way, way back. The customer experience was was almost like a uh, father figure or, or, or mother figure was the company, and then the customer was an ignorant child of two or three, and they were just told this is what you do, and they ate it up. Oh, okay, that's what I'm doing. And now the customers kind of evolved, and you know, maybe 20 years ago we were talking about an adolescent uh, style uh, customer. Now we've got a very, very sophisticated, um, highly educated uh, customer that sometimes, and these days with the internet, quite often knows more about the product and has done more research than the salesperson in the store. So companies just haven't been able to keep up with that. Yeah, no, very true. And and it's important that you brought that up. I mean, there's a lot of industries that have had to make wholesale changes um, because of this, for example, and they've, this forcing function, for example, you know, automotive, right? We go online and can do more research about the SMR, the MSRP, the the margins, uh, what the different opportunities are, so that people go into the car buying experience a lot more organized and uh, ready to demand what they want, what they believe is fair versus how the experience was for many years. I think the um, other two industries that are really, uh, you know, every industry is, is shifting, but there's a couple other ones that are really kind of interesting from that standpoint is healthcare. Certainly we've got healthcare customers, patients, family members, and then of course, financial services, these very complex industries um, where, to your point, we used to have to say, okay, it's complicated. You know better than me. Um, we've now got ammo as uh, customers to uh, really understand and demand different things. Well, definitely the customer has a large stick that they can bludgeon. Um, uh, bludgeon? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, well, you know, really. I mean, some of the, the, the nightmare stories. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, I think in some cases – 
people, it's it's a slippery slope because you've got, we've got this amazing tool, the social tool where everybody can talk. And I'm constantly going onto Facebook and on Twitter and basically uh, talking people down. It's like, yeah, I get that you're outraged and stuff like that, but look at the way you're looking at it. Have you really researched the problem? Do you understand the company side of things? So you do tend to get people overreacting because they have all this power and then companies have this knee-jerk reaction says, oh my God, let's cut it. We'll never do social media because it's just too scary. It's the, it's the worst thing that they could do. Well, there has to be a balance. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that we're trying to teach companies is that there's lots of listening pipes or ways that you can garner feedback from your customer. And the most powerful method for deciding what to take action on is to aggregate multiple sources and to see where the convergence is. In addition to being deliberate about architecting things based on needs and emotion, um, don't knee-jerk on the first thing. Make sure you know um, really what's driving it and where things are really aggregating. Yeah, and, and, you know, once again, it's a great opportunity to – disarm by asking for more information. If somebody's freaking out on some social media platform, uh, the best thing you can do is actually, wow, we didn't know that. Uh, Here's my email. Please contact me right away. I want to have a conversation about this uh, so we can fix it and and make sure that you're, you're, you're satisfied or happy. And that's what goes out in the public domain. And then you just try and get them off the public domain. And a lot of times if you approach a person, they're just frustrated because they haven't been able to get through customer service or they bought a product or they bought a service and they're really disappointed. And that is an opportunity for an organization. The problem is, is people aren't given that permission to do that. And it's it's a timely thing. It doesn't happen over days or weeks. It happens over minutes and sometimes seconds. We, we need to help leaders and, and organizations move social media from being about PR and marketing and our message, which is a very kind of old world marketing driven way to that it's a conversation. And then that to your point, these need to be people who are seasoned and able to have a conversation with the customer or that there's an immediate handoff to somebody who can own the customer experience and um, make them well again. Because without it, it it doesn't feel um, genuine. It's like, oh, big deal. You know, they acknowledged it, but I never heard from anybody. And it almost makes the matter worse if you reach out, you acknowledge on Twitter or whatever, but the company doesn't really follow through and put the customer back together again. Yeah, I, well, and, you know, I think stuff like that's been happening way before uh, social media media's been out there. A lot of corporations, they have a really hard time understanding what the ROI of great uh, customer communication is. And, uh, you know, case in point, I went to a McDonald's once. They didn't serve me. By the time they uh, were ready to serve, I got angry and I just walked out. It had been 15 minutes and I phoned up head off and said, just to let you know, this particular McDonald's took 15 minutes to get back to me. Uh, and by that time, I was about to miss my bus, so I had to leave, so I went home hungry. So you have a problem with that particular franchise. I'm in the industry, and this is just me saying, please uh, fix it. And a customer service person got back to me, and I got a really glib answer and no response. So the customer service really is doing the franchisee a misservice. They're really pissing off people, and there is this huge lack of communication and responsibility and training. Yeah, I, I agree with you, which gets right back to, the, to, to your point of 
owning it and realizing that this is a make or break moment. And these make or break moments have everything to do with the growth of the customer. And we've got to invest in that. People have looked at service as a cost center versus really a revenue erosion management opportunity, right? You know, if you're if you've got a customer and they're unhappy and you're not taking care of them, that, that could be a very a lost customer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what are they saying? It's like a million dollars in advertising revenue to get a customer. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a big risk. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So let's talk a little bit about the book. Do you, do you think it's a book that people can skip around in like, like oh, chapter three, um, I really want to read this particular uh, competency or should they kind of read it from cover to cover? Well, I I put a reading roadmap in the front of it so people know what they get from each chapter. Um, I would definitely recommend reading the first chapter. It's an overview of each of the five competencies. Chapter two, which is a, it's the culmination of a lot of years of understanding what has and doesn't does not have to happen for this work. And then there's, they can actually then kind of step into each of the five competencies to learn more about them if they, if they really want to. Uh, So once they read chapter one, and the roadmap, they can make some decisions about what's important to them. The five competencies do build to create a deliberate engine, um, but not everybody has the time or the ability to put the whole, all of the work into building the whole engine. And and a lot of companies are more mature in one area than another. So I did re- wrote, write it so that the reader can look at it as a complete unit. And then the last chapter is almost its own freestanding um, chapter around how to hire, develop a chief customer officer, which hasn't really been written about before. Yeah. And I I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that. Um, What are the skill sets of a great chief customer officer? Well, the first one is probably one that people don't think about, and it's the ability to check your ego at the door, meaning that if it, a, a lot of people, especially if you've been brought up, as most of us have, inside of corporate environments where we're responsible for a certain thing and there's KPIs on our scorecard and our goal is to be successful for ourselves or our team on these KPIs on our scorecard. Well, if you're a CCO, your job is to make others successful, to um, enlighten the entire leadership team to take action, enlighten certain operational leaders to take action and to illuminate and enable, um, and that through that you will be successful. So that's the first thing, which is probably not normal inside of a corporation. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and also, you know, it only seems like you want somebody that that's uh, affable and hands-on compared to aloof and uh, number-crunching yeah, absolutely. So you're you're hitting on the second competency, which is really important. And that is, especially if uh, there's two ways of going about this. One is a company will elevate or, or you know, move somebody to this role um, that is a proven operational leader and who has a great relationship base and collaborative. So they've proven they can do a job they've they've changed things in the organization they've been successful and they've been you know customer driven as they've done it and you know 60 to 75% of most CCOs come from within organizations a big part of what i do is i i coach them into success in that role um 
so that gets to really your second point is you have to have done operationally relevant work. If you're sitting on high and overly uh, just pontificating and haven't been part of the work of the business, it's much more difficult to be relevant in driving change across the organization. Uh, you know, that, that also reminds me of a, a little note here is a direct line of communication. How many uh, chief creative officers are failing or that, you know, a C-suite division failing because they don't have a direct line. Nobody in the organization that's actually in front of the customer has any way of communicating to you, I need permission to do this like right now and it's going to cost the company $50,000. Can I spend $50,000 to save this client? Do, is is that part of the new strategy where you're empowering uh, lower-end employees to make relatively large decisions because there's no time to try and get a hold of a manager or somebody higher up in the decision-making chain? Uh, yes. In fact, one of the things that we do, as we work with leaders and the organization, what we try to do is is rework the decision-making blueprint to be from silo-based decision-making and silo-based rules, which are random to the customer, to a, f- a decision-making br- blueprint that aligns to how the customer traverses your business. So let's say the second stage or the second journey and many customers' journey is, let's say, getting a sample of whatever you're selling. And to your point, there may be a rule around if it's going to cost $20, more than $20 to ship a sample, you have to get permission. Well, the customer may be a five-year customer, highly valuable, and now you've got a frontline person who's got to stop and get permission to spend $20 to send a sample, right? These are the random rules that are getting in the way of building that customer asset. And so one of the things that we actually do is by stage of this journey is we we, we build a, a decision-making code of conduct. What will we always do to enable employees to deliver value? And what must we never do to impede their ability to deliver value? And the, the key really here is, Bob, that we've got to be operationally al- aligned and consistent. A lot of times people say, oh, just do what's right. Well, what does that even mean, right? And people are worried about getting their hands slapped or whatever. When you can get specific, at least by stage of the journey, we now are making more deliberate decisions about enabling people to really deliver value and get rid of the shackles that get in the way of what they do. In the book, and you just mentioned that the journey or a journey map, what is that and and what is the power around it? Well, it's it's what I mentioned earlier. It's it's really a decision making blueprint for the organization, meaning that most organizations their the the frame for their business is, you know, you sit in a CEO's meeting or session and you know, in a well-intended way, of course, they go around the room and say marketing, operations, sales, how are you each doing? And Every person will, you know, their people are working hard, report on the, the what they're working on and the progress they've made um, for the action that they're taking down their silo to execute on tasks that are specific to their area of the business. What the journey map does is it... It changes the starting point of the organization and the frame of reference to not be just sales and marketing, but have the, the, the conversation and the accountability and the passion be about, okay, let's, how are we as a team delivering the onboarding experience? Because it's not just sales or service, it's communication beforehand, it's 
Um, did the software get there on time? Were the people providing the information? Did the system clog up? If somebody had a question, they called customer service. Were they organized? Um, but if you typically say, "How is you know how did sales go?" You'll get a positive, but then the customer is having a difficult time through the rest of the onboarding experience. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the people that you interview because in the book, you know, you went through and, and you interviewed a bunch of people all over the world. And this is going to be seem like a totally unfair question, but was there a favorite interview? You know, I, I there were a lot of I loved everybody. I mean, I, and so I'll tell you a couple that I thought were super cool because they were unexpected. Um, by design, because we are passionate people who are collaborative in nature and have felt as individuals like we're pushing the rock up the hill for many years. In fact, that's what those are called, my rock, my story. Um, people are have been very genu- generous, so it's been fantastic. Some of the uh, unexpected ones that I think people are going to enjoy reading about um, – in addition to the others, so I, you know, this isn't about favorites. I'm going to change your question around a little sure. bit, Bob. Is some of the industries that are really taking hold of this? For example, you know, many people in their life have been to the Smithsonian Institute. They now have a guy who, uh, Simar, who is in charge of building out the entire Smithsonian journey. Um, they have 30 million people that go there a year, every year, and they've now mapped out the emotional journey that you have before, during, and after um, with your family. If you're on a school trip, whatever. And I, I'm just so excited about that. I think that's fantastic. Um, and there's some others, you know, some government in, in area, you know, the woman who runs all of student financial aid for the government, there is a chief cu- customer officer there. Um, so I, I think some of these things that uh, touch our life um, as customers, we're going to love reading about from that standpoint. Do you think the the chief customer officer is the humanist for an organization? And to clarify that is to to make a corporation uh, more human and more accessible. Well, you know, I mean, when I was at Land's End, Gary Comer, the founder, called me the conscience of the company. So um, for, for me, it is actually, I say that a big part of the role is to tell the story of customers' lives and to help companies grow by improving their lives. And so, so many of the things I teach are to take customers off the spreadsheet and to make what we do about storytelling about the humans take the, and, and because when we do things deliberate and these are things that have to be part, become part of behavior and um, normal protocol of the business until it is, it's just, a meeting or a presentation. For example, um, one of the things that that um, Adobe does, lots of companies are starting to adopt this, is something that they call executive immersion. Um, I love this story because what they're requiring now, and it's actually attached to incentive, is all of their leaders on a regular basis now have to go in and try to download a, a you know, some kind of a product or do what customers are expected to do. And by stepping through the shoes of the customer on a regular basis, we think about the human on the end. Um, And so those are a lot of the things that I'm teaching people to do to represent the life so that the work is really about improving the life and believing that and knowing we see it as outcomes that if you improve the life, the company will grow. You know, there's been also a... um quite a lot of, of uh, 
talk and, and several new books that have come out about humanizing the workforce on an HR level where you are treating your uh, staff not as widgets but more as um, a tool to help, you know, like you're saying, uh, bring better customer service to a company. And, you know, earlier on you mentioned it and you just mentioned right now that it's got to be part of the culture of a company. So if you're in an organization that's not quite getting it, what are your options other than quitting? Um, can you, uh, you know, <laughs> take your division and make it a super customer service division and, and then maybe present it to the CFO or the CEO and say, look, at look, we're getting amazing ROI. Uh, this is a little side project that we've been doing. And here are the results. What do you think? Should we try and get this throughout the, all, all the organization? Or is it something that has to be decided by C-suite and brought all the way down through the organization? Well, you know, what you mentioned is some tactics and actions that we've all tried in the past, um, which is we we will, in, especially in very large organizations, one thing that works is to find an advocate of um, a leader, for example, in a regional area. In many big, big companies, you've got people who run regions. So you might be able to, f to, to laboratory this work there and prove the results. One thing that we have done with great, great success almost everywhere is to simply start with this first competency in the book. And I blog a lot about it also, which is customers as assets. And that is to um, prove in a very clear way that that in most companies we're we're talking about new sales new customers we don't even call them customers sales how much product did we sell well we have to turn that into how many new customers did we bring in volume and value and then also how many customers did we lose volume and value and almost every company is bringing in a lot of customers. Some, some are slowing their growth, which makes lost customers even more important. And so we are able to get lots of traction on this by saying, look, we brought in 20,000 new customers, but we lost 15,000 customers. And the 15,000 we lost are of much higher value than the 20,000 that we brought in. So that's one of the very first things that we do that often turns the tide. And it's not refutable, you know, that you either lost them or you didn't. Yeah, well, it's hard numbers. And I mean, I think that is probably one of the most telling strategies is just to, if you can put it on paper and chart it and put it up on a PowerPoint or hand it out in a meeting, say, guys, look at the numbers. They do not lie. Now, you want to go crunch them, come back. We have another meeting in a week. But I tell you, we're losing a ton of money because of our strategy. And here's the solution. Yeah, exactly. Or get a bowl of marbles. I talked about this in the book. I don't know if you saw this. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Um, one of the things that we've done quite a bit, and it seems so silly, and, you know, some of it goes back to being human, right? Who doesn't remember marbles as a kid, right? So we, you know, so you're doing this thing with marbles and people are kind of smiling because they're marbles, but you bring in two bowls of marbles and it's the a lot of leaders, most people in many ways, are visual learners. So um, bring in two bowls of marbles. One bowl of marbles, you got to do a little mathematical equation of your new customers, volume and value. And then the second bowl of marbles is your lost customers, volume and value. And, you know, so often we use 
the word retention rate or whatever, and we really have to use these whole numbers because it is in these whole numbers that um, we see that we're growing or losing. And so a lot of times that bowl of lost marbles is just as full or almost as full as new customers. And that's really, really powerful. Oh, for sure. Because then people start to realize like the the value of a pre-existing customer that's happy with your product, they're not going to be looking at what the competition is doing as long as they have a great human relationship with the company. Right. Well, and then you know what you can say, right, Bob? What's that? We lost our marbles. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, you know what? I'm I'm gonna have to draw. I'm gonna have to research, find an organization, build my way up into that position, just so I can use that line. <laughs> <laughs> it's been 15 years, but I can finally use this line. Let's talk a little bit about um, your aha moment. You know, you you've been doing this a long, long, long time, and I this, have. There's a lot of stuff that, that's in your gray matter. And as you bring it out and put it on paper, it changes. The reality changes a little bit for you. Um, what was a, a big aha moment for you when you were putting this uh, this version of the book together? Thanks. Yeah, I had to think a lot about the organization of the book um, because to your point, how do people navigate it? How do they find what they need? And I would say, and I referred to it a little bit earlier, that second chapter around uniting the leadership team was a chapter I didn't know, didn't think deliberately about initially that I had to write. And then I remembered that, and and as I coach leaders now, we actually build it into our coaching path, is that unless you unite the C-suite and First of all, we do a Vulcan mind meld, which is to get everybody on the same page of what is customer experience and it's not customer service and what is our current experience and that we are not reliable from a one company standpoint. And, you know, do we have a code of conduct and what are we really delivering and how are we deliberately growing and how are we going to language this all consistently? And do we all agree to personally commit, not just in a voice standpoint, but in taking new action? If you don't do all of that, then the CCO is either someone who is really good because they're pitching, 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 but they're pitching 20 times versus and, uh, versus doing the most important things in a collective way across the company to really drive transformation. So without that, it drives the CCO into doing incremental change, which is not bad, but also moves them to be a beggar. Because you're just kind of begging for time on each person's individual um, agenda. And you're really not going to transform unless leaders' behavior changes in unison. And, you know, it goes back where we were talking about bringing the marbles so the guys get it. Yep. And they start using that, right, in their language. Things like this happen a lot in high-end communication with, uh, you know, people that are, you know, siloed in or or that's their career and they're the CFO, their CEO, and they've got, that's their forest. That's their, their world. And that's what they're spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week thinking about. And to be able to break through that and get them to have an aha moment about the importance and how uh, the customer experience is actually affecting their whole division of their silo or their forest. That's right. Um, until they have that aha moment, you you really are your hands are tied and it's just going to be a frustrating experience 
That's right. And, and that's when, when I do this thing I call coaching, which is to help, you know, I won't often even take on coaching unless I get to have two days with the CCO or CX leader along with the leadership team because we need to bring them all to a united place. Um, and often I'll even do a um, – and, and we to your point, Bob, they all need to see a what's in it for me in it, right? Uh, what's in it for the company, and uh, sometimes we even and and you know I, I got to do this because I can only take a help a certain number of companies a year as you can I'm sure. Um, sometimes we'll present all of the information on the five competencies and I'll say this is what it's going to take. You all need to be personally involved in this and and you can see some of the specific actions I'm talking about when I say personally involved. Do you still want to move forward? I have the contract right here. I will tear it up if you aren't all personally in. And um, it it makes an impact and then they have to stop and decide. And you need that level of deliberate commitment because who wouldn't commit to being customer focused? Well, yeah, but you'd be surprised. They said, well, we don't have the money for it or we don't have the resources or this or that or the other thing. If they don't get that it's a fundamental strategy for the success or sometimes survival of the organization that they're in, uh, that organization really doesn't stand much of a chance. That's right. Hey, I wanted to ask you, uh, for people that you know have read the book or, or want to research and get more into this uh, chief customer officer attitude and approach to business, where should they go? Do you do a blog or stuff like that? Uh, lots of, yes. I just relaunched my brand new website, lots of new content on there. In fact, I give away a lot of things on purpose to people. So my website, as I mentioned earlier, is customerbliss.com. On there, you can download the first chapter of the book. There's also the reality check audit you can take from the book that you can do as a download. Um, and then there's a blog there, of course, but lots of tools under the ideas section because I want to, I want even my website to be a learning journey for you. You can download the five competencies as well. I want to go back a little bit to, to what we talk about C-suite because I think this is critical or, or the owner of an organization. We, you know, it doesn't have to be a large mammoth 50,000 person organization has global scope. It can be a relatively small mom and pop shop. It can be a franchise. How, you know, when you're talking to people and try them to get them to understand that they have to 100% commit, for all the people, there, there's the financial people, there's the owner, there's um, the sales and marketing people, and sometimes the like branding. Um, which ones get it fastest and which one really have a hard time getting it? You know, it depends on the person. Um, but what we find is there's sometimes a little bit of questioning around the CFO folks because, uh, you know, it's on us, I believe, to connect the dots for people um, between customer experience and this work. And uh, uh, sometimes people aren't really deliberate about that. So, um Th- th- that may happen sometimes product development people we in our meetings we always include the senior vp of product especially in very product engineering driven companies for example um because they are making the thing and often if you're a very product driven company i call it the product power core um the the thought is if we build it they will come well if you build it but you don't wrap a great experience around getting it buying it serving it and buying another one, then the thing is great, but the experience wrapped around the thing may prevent you from wanting to buy another thing. 
Um, and so that's why Competency One, Customers as Assets, also brings lots of those folks around. How important do you think it is to um, survey in the sense that, sure, you're going to have a, a certain percentage of customers that are going to be complaining, and that makes it easy because they're complaining. But you know, for every one person that's complaining, there may be hundreds or sometimes thousands of people that are disgruntled, but not angry enough to actually uh, approach the organization and, and try and get help. Is, is there a, an approach or is it part of the strategy to have more of an outreach program? Well, what I, what I advocate is a very balanced uh, listening path, if you will. And it's, it's competency three in the book and then competency four also connects to it. And it's really uh, several things. Um, Bob, there's three kinds of listening that an organization should take from my point of view. And we've seen this effective. And it's the convergence of all three of these things. One is unaided listening. You mentioned it. It's uh, trending of voluntary feedback. And there's multiple places where an organization gets this feedback. And even the way companies get this needs to be organized. So you've got, um, maybe you get a bunch of volume of feedback from your call center. You may get uh, feedback from your web. Maybe you get feedback on some kind of app the frontline has, or you've got stores. Uh, But the challenge, Bob, is none of those systems for feedback are organized around the same categories. So it's all kind of incidental or reactive letters or whatever that's read. So even aggregating that to be able to trend it and roll it up to volumes is important. And what we do with that feedback, which changes things, is we present it by stage of the experience. We then pair that with two other kinds of feedback. Um, and, and included in that, by the way, is also your social media feedback, because that all needs to be organized under the same categories and presented by stage of the experience. So we can do that storytelling about people's lives. The second kind of feedback is that experiential listening I mentioned earlier. Have your company leaders and organization also do what you require customers to do and film it and show it and show show screenshots, show the letters. And, and, and what we do is we actually start pinning this up by stage of the journey. So you're building a story template of the experience. And then the third piece, yes, is surveys. Um, but it's one piece of the pie. It's not the only pie. And it really connects the dots. So if you're storytelling, what we would do is say, uh, start with customer assets. As a result of the experience we delivered this month or quarter or year, um, here's our growth or loss of our customer base. Let's now traverse the journey and see what's causing this. In stage three, our complaints spiked 53% this month. Um, We also saw, saw social media spikes in these same areas. We all, we had you try that. How was it for you? Here's the screenshot. You can see the spaghetti bowl the customer had to go through. We have a survey question on it. And by the way, those results were also down 15%. And so do you see the balance in that? We're using the survey to tell the story, but we're not starting with the score. We're starting with the life and we're using that tool to numerically validate it. But it's not about score chasing now. It's about improving the experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you described, I was thinking, gosh, it's almost like you're doing detective work. You're doing research and I mean, in-depth research, not some, oh, let's see if we can get 10 points and this and that. And you're talking about a highly sophisticated, uh, very controlled, uh, almost laboratory style uh, approach to it. So that when you do present the numbers and the strategy that the company will need to move forward, it's non-refutable. 
It's a competency. That's right. And and then competency four is important too because it's about knowing even before you ask your customer where you're failing so or not reliable. So for example, this is process management and customer experience, the convergence of those. So let's say we go back to that example earlier about getting a sample. You should care about the cycle time um, for getting samples, the number of customers who had to ask more than once, um, the, the number of poor frontline people who had to get permission and that delayed it with as much rigor as you care about new sales because that sample experience will drive future growth. So in in the same breath, you should say, um, let's say we're telling that story, you know, we 40% of our customers complained about the sample experience. Well, no wonder we weren't delivering samples. It was taking us over a week and a half to deliver 90% of the samples. So we also can, in the same breath, look at our own, hold a mirror to ourselves on our own operation. Before we go, is there one thing that our listening audience can do to help their organization be more uh, customer-centric? What I would say is start your business by understanding and being really deliberate about what your role is in improving customers' lives. And um, do those customer asset metrics. I think it will start to change leadership language. And read the book. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking with Jean Bliss today, her book, Chief Customer Officer 2.0, How to Build Your Customer-Driven Growth Engine. And as you say, I would definitely go to her website, check out some of the tools that she's got in there. Uh, Definitely check out this book. It's uh, a breeze to read, a lot of great information and some good, you know, how-to strategies to move forward and some wonderful research uh, interviews. Uh, So yeah, it gets gets a definite should read from me. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure and thank you for having me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.